Hello and welcome to Season 4 of the Global Founders Podcast. This is Drew Precious, Director of Communications at the Presidential Precinct. On Global Founders, you will hear from trusted voices who are working to further any of the precinct's six core focus areas. We hope that these conversations will spark new ideas, encouraging and empowering leaders in their work, ultimately moving us all towards the precinct's vision of thriving, just, and free societies worldwide. And now, on with today's episode. Well, here we are at Montpelier with a special guest today, John Olajide, Texan, Nigerian, American, entrepreneur, and a man deeply interest, interested in the bigger issues of constitutionalism, development, and who shares my love for Africa. So the theme for today is, who are you? How uh, did you make this journey from Nigeria to uh, the U.S., to Texas? Uh, the journey from uh, being an engineer to being an entrepreneur? And really the journey from looking at business uh, and now looking broader at the at the world and what the world needs in terms of development. Uh, and the question is, what drives you? So let's start with the first one. Tell me how you ended up being a Nigerian, a Texan, an American, an African, all together. What was that journey like? Thank you, Francois. Thank you for the opportunity to have this um, conversation with you. And um, I underline conversation when I say that because I want to ask questions as well. And um, all the things that you want to know about me, I want to know about you as well. I want to know who you are and um, what's informed your journey and what makes you get up every day. So I'm just as um, curious about you um, as well. Um, So I'm looking forward to learning um, from this conversation. Um, As you mentioned, I, I was born and raised in Nigeria. Lagos, Nigeria. Lagos, Nigeria. I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria. And um, I had uh, uh, a great start in life because I had two loving parents, excellent parents. And um, my parents didn't um, have a lot of formal education. At best, they have a sixth grade formal education. Americans will consider that sixth grade. In Nigeria, we'll call that primary six. You know, that will be the equivalent. So they, my, both of my parents did not have an opportunity to go to high school. But, you know, they met each other, you know, got married and um, had their children. I'm the middle child of five five children, five boys. And um, my parents um, were entrepreneurs. They owned their own business. They were distributors for Unilever, you know, global big company, you know. You know so they were distributors for Unilever. So. For an American audience, the idea there is you'll buy from Unilever as a wholesaler and then retailers will come buy from my parents. So my parents own different storefronts where retailers will come buy from them. So um, from an early age, I was exposed to what they did, you know, for business and how they grew their business and, you know, advanced in their life or in their lives. Um, at some point, they did pretty well and, you know, middle class, maybe even upper middle class at some point. And, you know, we had a great life. I remember being born, you know, very humble beginnings where 
um, each one, I haven't shared this publicly or don't really talk about this a lot, but, you know, being born in a, my early recollection of the house we lived in was a, a two-bedroom, when I say two-bedroom house, a living room and one bedroom were, and then there was a communal kitchen area that all the tenants they shared. So that's my recollection of that, you know, small house, lots of tenants in there. My parents had one living room and one bedroom that we all shared, but they advanced quickly, and we moved from that place to a middle-class um, community in Lagos, Nigeria, and was quite the leap from where we were to where we moved to. It was really, um, it was quite the leap. That's that's how I'll explain that, you know. Um, and we moved to another part of town. Um, I had the privilege of going to. Um, um, excellent um, private schools that my parents paid for and my parents made a lot of sacrifices to make sure we had the best education money could buy so uh, and that's why I've been blessed with great parents and they understood the value of an education and their thinking was what they couldn't have they wanted um, their children to have and in a sense because they felt they had been deprived of deprived of that you can say they overcompensated because what an excellent went to excellent schools had excellent after school programs folks will come home and extracurricular classes and all kinds of things so I was always pretty advanced um, academically and you know I did well in school too was pretty gifted in school and then went on to high school and I went to a military boarding school, a Navy, the Nigerian Naval Secondary, secondary School in Abelkota, in, um, in another state, neighboring state, Ogun State in Nigeria. And um, so from 10 years old, from 10 to 16 years old, I was in a military boarding school. And um, it was a great boarding school. Um, lots of discipline. You get up early in the morning, over a very structured routine, um, structured life. Um, Great, great memories. I had my friends around me all the time. I was challenging academically. Um, and at that time, it, it would have been considered one of, the, one of the best schools, really, in the country. So I knew I was getting a world-class education. I knew that. And um, participated in sports as well. And, you know, it was just an idyllic childhood, really. Growing up, loving parents, br lots of brothers. I played a ton of soccer. Growing up, because growing up, you know, would go to school. I mean, before I go to high school, we'll go to school, do homework, and in the evenings, we'll have an opportunity to play as much soccer as we could all day, every day. And I think one part of um, my story growing up, really, was a part where, you know, my parents owned their own business. So um, every day, and it was a cash-type business. So every day, my parents will come back home with sacks of cash, and we'll just dump that in a room. And after, when we got back from school and we had done our homework and played soccer and all that, when we got back into the house, before we went to bed every night, Francois, we would um, bundle up, well, we'll organize all the cash, bundle them up, you know, organize them, account for them. And um, the next morning on my way to school, one of my responsibilities was to make sure, go to the bank, made a deposit, have a deposit sl slip for that, and then at night hand that over to my parents and repeat that all day every day so so from a young age I was I understood where the where the cash came from how we needed to get to the bank and I was surrounded by the language of business you know invoices and rebates and all kinds of things that my parents spoke so all around me there was business language and 
And um, as soon as we could, we'll go to the stores with them and participate in what they were doing. So I understood retailing and business and buying and selling and markups and you know things margin. I understood all those concepts early on. So I, I had a, a deep interest in business and all that. So as I went through a school and was being was going through a formal education process, and then you learn. I did all the sciences. I did very well in the typical um, physics, chemistry, biology, and all that. But I noticed I had a, a deep interest in economics as well because as I was reading things in economics, it wasn't just academic for me to study that and make an A um, um, on a test. I could connect what I was looking at or what I was being exposed to to what my parents did every day. And that connection was there. So I'll tell you one quick story and I'll stop. Um, I remember there was a time my brother and I were just walking around in Lagos, just walking on the street. And I said, you know, folks complain about, you know, there's a scarcity of money and there's not enough money to go around. And I said, why wouldn't the government just print out more cash and give people money so everyone has enough money? And then um, I was maybe seven or eight then when I told my brother, when I asked my brother that question. And he said, if they print more money and everyone has a lot more cash, then the folks selling items will realize there's a lot more cash to be made and they'll raise prices, right? And they'll get all that cash from people and then you're back to square one because things have cost more, folks, you know. So that was the first time in my life that I made the connection between, you know, so I just, so the whole economic system is more organized and I realized, you know, so just that exchange with my brother and I thought he was the smartest guy in the world because I thought I was a profound answer, you know. So that made sense to me. So as I got exposed to economics in, in, in high school, I wasn't just reading to pass a test. I was deeply interested in what I was studying, demand and supply and equilibrium and economics and all those concepts. And even in high school, I read every advanced copy of all things economics and money and finance that I could get my hands on. So my understanding of all those things were a lot more advanced um, in high school than what the typical curriculum exposed us to because I was trying to think through all that and connect that with what my parents did. And um, so during the holidays, when when I was in high school, during the holidays, when we go to their stores, I'd ask my parents to have me, to to give me an opportunity to actually manage a storefront myself, and I would want to know what their margins were on different items. And and what I would do is, if for instance maybe my dad said, "Hey, our margin on this item is fifteen percent," what I would want uh, what I would do is I interacted with the retailers. Francois was I'd make maybe mark it up twenty percent. So at the end of the day, when I accounted for what we had done for the day, my parents got all their fifteen percent markup. And that 5% margin was mine. So from an early age, I've been exposed to things like that. And I I was entrepreneurial from as early as I can remember. And even I think as early as 12, I'd already organized and a company and wanted to grow an enterprise. And I had grand visions of what that was going to be. So those are my early days. Well, that's a, a, a great insight into John Olajide, the Nigerian, and the young boy. Uh, how did you come to be in Texas? How did you come to the U.S.? What made you decide you want to come here? Uh, or did your parents send you? Great question. Great question. You know, a part of my early childhood that I didn't talk about in, the, in my earlier response was when I was a kid, I read a ton. I read everything I could get my hands on. I'm sure I read all the books in our house and all the books in my neighbor's house that I could get my hands on. And I bought every book I could find. And when I would go to school, 
all the books my friends had, I'll trade with them. I read everything around me. And at some point, I got very interested in just American bestsellers. You know, used to read a lot of American bestsellers. And as I read American bestsellers, I was exposed to, you know, your world expands. You're exposed to America. And um, and I'd come to understand that as a, a line of opportunity, a place where there was opportunity, you know, great universities. I've been exposed to Harvard and, and MIT and places like that. And in Nigeria growing up, you know, typically um, kids will aspire to going to London, the UK, you know, for college, Oxford, Cambridge. You know, there's that uh, affinity there, but that wasn't really my interest. I was more interested in America, you know, and just the idea of a nation being formed, a group of people got together, started a country. Those ideas resonated with me early on. And the idea of self-determination, building your, your own um, country, and then an enterprise and I also saw that as a place that you could go so in particular I read this book um, Ken and Abel by Jeff I think Jeffrey Archer I, I believe that's the author Jeffrey Archer Ken and Abel I read that book and the book was about a um, you know a Polish immigrant Wladek something is his name and when he arrived in the US couldn't quite say his name I think that's how he ended up with the name Abel you know and another family Kane William Kane I think that's the family you know, prominent American family and really talked about their lives and how eventually their lives um, intersected. But from reading Abel's story, you know, as an immigrant, he came here and went on to great success. Those, all those types of exposures and influences helped me realize, you know, I want to go to the U.S. I want to go to college in the, in the U.S. I want to go to MIT. That was my dream because I understood MIT then to be the leading technological um, institution in the world, and um, I had done well enough to have the confidence that I believed I could, um, I f could fit in there academically, and I just wanted to learn and be challenged, and um, see what was possible. Um, so that was my dream of going to MIT. Um, so, so I had the desire to go to college in the U.S. and eventually ended up coming over. I did not end up end up at MIT. Um, I attend the University of Texas at Dallas, where I graduated from, and it's considered the MIT of the South, Francois, so that's as close as I came. And it's important. I'm a proud alumnus of the University of Texas at Dallas, and I, I share that everywhere that I go. Well, you're in a unique position because I want to know how has being an American and a Texan changed your views of Africa and of Nigeria. How do you see Nigeria today uh, from the vantage point of Texas? And how do you see America? How do you see Texas from the vantage point of Nigeria and Africa? Africa is always on my mind. You know, as I, so as I get, as I've gotten settled in America and built an American life, um, naturally you want to get assimilated, you want to get immersed, you want to understand your um, society. You want to build a life for yourself. You want to do all those things. But I'm always um, conscious of the fact that I want to learn as much as I can because um, I've always maintained uh, I've maintained my deep Nigerian connections. In a sense, I, um, I live in both worlds, if you will. Always. Always. And I've always wanted to learn from other places what they do, how they do things, and how 
I can help um, transfer that knowledge and all of that learned to help make Africa or the world better in general. So I've been um, fortunate to travel the world. I've been to different places. And, you know, as I sit here and have this conversation with and think, you know, I can't help but think about Korea, for instance. And you see, I'll come about to the point that I'm trying to make. And um, I visited Korea, and I know the challenges that country faced, South Korea specifically, in you know, after the Korean War, you know, 50s and 60s, and just how all the challenges they faced, one of the poorest countries in the world. And when you visit now and you see how it's been transformed from what it was to where it is today, Francois, in one generation. So when I see things like that, you know, I always think about Africa and how things can be better, how we can um, um, really invest in people, invest in education, invest in healthcare, increase the human capacity index. That's something else that I think about, you know. How can we raise living standards? How can we improve per capita GDP? How can we grow those economies? And and um, how can we create more opportunities um, there? How can we create the infrastructure of opportunity for more people um, to live better lives? Um, those are things that I'm still thinking about and how we can do that in a sustainable manner. So in, in, in Texas, I've been blessed. I've done business. We, we run a a global business now, national presence in the U.S. and growing internationally. And um, I have been blessed to also be a leader in the Dallas community. And Dallas, incredible place to live. I tell people, best place to live in America. You know, so I'll put in another plug for the Dallas area, Francois. But like lots of other places in the U.S., there are challenges there. Inequalities, disparities, um, things like that. And when I think about the divide north and south in Dallas, where the northern part of Dallas is more prosperous than the southern part. And I work with other individuals to help make a difference there. When I'm working on those equal issues, I always have a global mindset because I think that's just a microcosm of the challenges that exist globally. So in Dallas is north and south. I'm sure in other communities it's east and west or whatever the dichotomy there is. And then when you think about that globally, it's the West and other parts of the world and Africa. So these are global issues. Um, so um, I'm always paying attention, thinking about it and saying, how can we add value? How can we make things better? How can we invest? How can we create prosperity for more people? How can we build a more just society? How can we partner with others um, to make sure that, you know, those places are not being exploited. And we know that there are systems that exist in locales all over the U United States that have created disparity, some intentional, some unintentional, some just a fact of how human beings interact with each other. Um, and then there are also global systems. So how can we have conversations about helping people understand, for instance, that we're all connected? And that when Africa does well, the world does well. How can we have conversations about growing global GDP by saying when they grow, we grow. It benefits all. How can we have a more inclusive prosperity globally? So those are things that I think about and want to make sure that I'm, I'm privileged to be in rooms and circles. Now I can have those types of conversations with people that I've never met 
an African person from Nigeria, from Africa, that grew up in Africa, from produced by Africa, that's a peer. They can have a real conversation about things that matter to them. And the, 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 the story really is, as we think about the world and making it a better place, the analogy that I use, and I'll stop, Francois, is just imagine you've got 10 people in a boat, and um, only three of them have the resources to row that boat forward. They'll be working extremely hard to move that boat forward. It's not effective. They'll get tired. But when you empower all 10 individuals on that boat to be able to row with you, you can go faster. You can go farther. It's more efficient. It's more pleasurable. And that's how I think about the world. We're all connected. We're in this together. And you cannot have the global disparities that we have and have safety and security. And so a lot of the issues that are that exist globally are issues where you know, the right people or the right thoughts get together and think about how we can create more prosperity for all. But the prosperous can be more prosperous when there's even an inclusive prosperity and carrying everyone along. I think the world does better. That's how I think about it. I've seen it in smaller settings. So that's how I think about it globally and how I'm looking forward to locking arms with others to do all that we can to live the world a better place than we met it. So that's a lot of rambling, but these are my thoughts. Well, you mentioned the word prosperity several times, and you link it to leaving the world a better place, leaving a legacy. Uh, you have already created uh, a legacy in the business world, moving from an engineer to becoming a businessman. What was your biggest failure on that journey, and what was your biggest success? So um, so I'll tell you my story about how I got into the work that I, my business and access and all that. I, um, I have an aunt. I built a relationship with a lady in Dallas that I consider my aunt. And um, she was a director of nursing for a local home health care organization. And for those that don't understand, a home health organization is organizations, you know, health care providers providing care at home. So um, I was in college at the time. So I, she had asked me to come over. I was a broke college student, meaning I didn't have a lot of extra resources, and I was broker than most, candidly, because um, I was in school paying uh, incredibly expensive fees, and I was working every odd job to make things work and get by. So I'm going to go visit, and she was going to give me maybe $100 or $200, something like that. So I went to go visit, and I got there. And um, she was in her office, and I just started asking questions, like, what are you doing? What's going on here? And I said, you've got folks over there um, doing work on a computer. Can your computer talk to their computer? This was 2001, okay? So I said, hey, can you move files around and all that? And she said, no. So I explained all the benefits of um, having a computer network and having them work together. And she liked the idea and then took me to her boss. And I explained again to the boss all the benefits. And um, they said, why don't you go build that for us? So very quickly, I became the IT guy for that organization and um, was doing a lot of work for them and similar organizations. And very quickly, Francois, I, I, I saw that here's a, an organization that's obviously underserved from a technology perspective, but more importantly, here's an entire industry that's underserved from a technology perspective. That's the opportunity. And when you connect that with my thinking around healthcare and technology, so those dots were being connected in my mind. So um, I, I did lots of similar work for different organizations. And at some point, I told my aunt, why don't you go set up your own similar type of organization? 
And she said, I would never know where to start doing that. And um, maybe rather naively, I said, I think I can help you with that, you know. So um, I researched the licensing and regulatory standards for care at home organizations in Texas and served as her consultant to get her um, organization off the ground. And she got licensed, she got um, certified, accredited, all that went very successfully. And I was a consultant there. That was amazing. So now I understood the the technology aspects of the business. I had worked with that business and similar businesses to understand the operational aspects, how it worked internally. Now I understood the licensing and regulatory standards as well. I understood that deeply. So, you know, she got off the ground. And then when people ask her, hey, who helped you do this? Well, here's this consultant, this 20-year-old kid, <laughs> you know, is a consultant. So started doing similar work with different organizations. And um, as I learned all those businesses, again, the, the care in the home business lends itself very naturally to distributed computing. Because the way the business works is you'll have folks, caregivers, clinicians, out seeing patients in their homes and a back office staff to um, pull all that together. But a lot of that care wasn't happening in an, in an efficient manner. It wasn't happening in real time. So the, um, the clinicians will see patients in their homes and Two weeks later, they'll come turn in the paperwork and the offices and get paid. And I saw early on, why, why this should happen in real time. You know, we can leverage the internet to make this happen. So, um, so I did consulting work for different organizations and then eventually set out to build a technology platform for the industry. And um, I thought it would take six months to get it done. Francois ended up taking four years to really put it together. It was an enterprise platform. Um, the first um, couple of installs did not work. So talking about failures, that did not work. But, um, you know, we kept at it. And um, eventually we had first few clients and went on and the rest is history. Now we're all over the United States and growing rapidly internationally. And I believe the future of healthcare is in the home. I believe that um, um, globally. And we're building the infrastructure to leverage technology to increase access to quality healthcare services for as many people as possible globally. So you had a vision, but to get to the vision, you had the daring to change. You were constantly changing countries, careers, education. You, you really focused on how you could add value to others, and in the process, prosperity came to you. And you had failure. You, you, uh, this was not a, a linear path to success. What still drives you right now? You've you have you have created an enormous business with a great future. The youngest chairman of the Dallas Chamber of Commerce. You've achieved many things, but what still drives you? Why do you still get up early in the morning, as you told me? Hmm. Another. Um I love that question. You know, I think, Francois, the truth is I'm a lot more excited today than I ever was in my life because I've learned a lot of things and I continue learning. Um, you know, I, um, I was um, privileged to, you know, I went through, a, I had an incredibly busy year last year, you know, serving as the chairman for the Dallas Regional Chamber in a COVID world and then the George Floyd situation in the U.S. and running a, a rapidly growing um, enterprise and lots of other things. 
And on, while doing all that, I was also taking an intense leadership course. I don't know why I signed up for that. I think maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, you know, if that's what you want to think about it. But I, I took that leadership class, and um, at the end of that class, something that we had to do was really talk about what we know that our purpose is, our purpose in life is, why we get up every day, what our purpose in life is, and then a declaration. And my purpose in life, Francois, is my purpose in life is to serve others. That's crystal clear to me. That's my purpose in life. And um, my my declaration is that I, I stand for leadership in service of others. So my purpose is to serve, and I stand for leadership in service of others. So as I reflect on that, just speaking to you now, there's, the idea is that really I'm a servant leader, but I've always been a reluctant leader because I, I never just wanted to lead and step out there and do whatever was necessary. I am a more philosophical type. You know, hey, you let others do it, support them and, and do all those ideas. But I've realized that there are times when you have to step out and lead. So I get up every day to serve others, um, to lead others and serve others. That's why I get up um, every single day. That's a great point at which to thank you for speaking to us. And uh, I look forward to the rest of our journey together. Thank you, Francois. Thank you for the opportunity. I didn't get an opportunity to get as many questions in. So I would like to flip the script eventually and be asking the questions and you can respond. So thank you.